Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod, Israel Policy Forum's podcast. Recording from New York, I'm Evan Gottesman, Communications Associate. In the 19 months since President Donald Trump took office, we've seen a dramatic reversal in long-standing American policy toward the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Last Friday saw yet another major shift, with the Trump administration announcing that it would reallocate $200 million in funds previously dedicated to the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, aid projects in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Already this year, the U.S. had lowered its aid to UNRWA, the U.N.'s Palestinian-specific refugee agency, from an expected $350 million to $60 million. But reports are now circulating that American funding will be cut altogether. So what gives? Why did the Trump administration make this decision? Where was this aid going? And what will its previous recipients do now that the U.S. is turning off the tap? To help us unpack these questions, we're joined by someone who has spent his professional career working on this issue. Dave Hardin was the Assistant Administrator for the USAID Bureau for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance under the Obama administration. In that capacity, Hardin worked on crises in Haiti, Libya, Iraq, Somalia, South Sudan, Syria, Yemen, and, most important to our conversation today, the West Bank and Gaza Strip, where he led the U.S. assistance mission for over a decade. Today, he's the managing director of the Georgetown Strategy Group, a Washington, D.C.-based consulting firm. Dave, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Evan. Thanks for having me. So starting off, uh, you worked in the USAID Bureau for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance. What does someone who works there do on their average day? I came to this position after having served for 11 years in the West Bank and Gaza. As the assistant administrator for DACHA, I oversaw all global crises. So if it was South Sudan or Syria, Yemen, Somalia, we were in the thick of it. And it was an exciting job at a compelling time. And before that, how did you end up working specifically in the Palestinian territories? So it's actually a funny story. I was uh, in Almaty, Kazakhstan with my family, where I was the regional legal advisor for USAID for Central Asia. And I got a call asking if I would be willing uh, to serve in Tel Aviv. And this was in 2005. So it was just at the end of the second intifada. And my wife thought, wow, it's a big job, but also seems kind of dangerous in Tel Aviv. Because when you're sitting in Almaty, Kazakhstan, and you're seeing the suicide bombers going off and, 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 and the complexity of the second in the father, you wonder if you really want to send your family there. But we did. And it was an extraordinary experience, an extraordinary run. I began as the deputy mission director in 2005, right before Gaza disengagement. Uh, and at that point, we weren't even sure if uh, either Israeli or Palestinian society were going to descend into to chaos because disengagement was a big deal. And I, when I served through the three Gaza wars, the war with Lebanon and Hezbollah and the internal strife between Hamas and Fatah in Gaza – uh, with, uh, among other people, George Mitchell and uh, Martin Indyk and, and John Kerry. And so it was really an amazing snapshot of Middle East history. And did you find that things played out better than you had expected? Because you were coming in at such a strenuous time in Israeli-Palestinian relations, as you mentioned, with the tail end of the Second Intifada and the Gaza disengagement. It was tough. 
I mean, it, it was it was very tough. So I remember coming in in 2005 and, and deciding whether or not we had enough food stocks in the warehouses for Gaza right before Gaza disengagement. Uh, if you recall, there was also a disengagement out of the Northern West Bank at that point, too. And so I was up getting military briefings on how the disengagement would would go and what the consequences would be, and and um, and we had to prepare ourselves. Uh, and then, of course, we immediately had the Palestinian Legislative Council elections in 2006, where Hamas came to power. So all of this, and then the follow-on wars, of course, all of this was very very tough. Now, I did believe that there was an opportunity for peace, and particularly when George Mitchell came in uh, with Obama and Salam Fayyad was the prime minister and Tony Blair came in as the head of the, uh, of the quartet. I, I thought that there was a real opportunity there. Uh, so what do, what do you think changed? Because because here, here we are now and uh, we're, we're not even on the big picture issues. It, it, it's humanitarian assistance that's that's at stake now. It's not even right. the the future of the two-state solution. Right. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it has changed. Uh, there, there is no political horizon right now. And um, I, I think the lack of hope is going to create a very risky time for the region. What changed? I mean, there's always missed opportunities and missed failures. I think that we missed really seizing what it was that Fayad was doing in terms of building a two-state solution, uh, or building the institutions of the Palestinian state. Can you lay out a little about who Salam Fayad was for our, our listeners who may not be familiar with him? Sure. So, so Salam Fayad was the prime minister of the Palestinian Authority beginning in 2007, kind of halfway through. So, so there was an internal battle between Fatah and Hamas in 2007 that was actually quite violent in Gaza. And Gaza and the West Bank effectively split. Fayyad took over in the West Bank. Tony Blair came in as the quartet envoy a year and a half later. George Mitchell came in as the U.S. envoy. And Fayyad decided that he would try to create the institutions of a future Palestinian state that much of the negotiations were outside of his remit, but he could create a functional governing structure. He could deliver basic services, both health and education, and he could create a more viable private sector economy. And so Fayyad, for that period of time, really was seized with creating what could have been a reasonable, moderate, effective, and functional uh, Palestinian state. He was ultimately sidelined by, by Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, correct? That's, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, it was, it was disappointing because concurrently, Abbas and Omar uh, were negotiating some of the core issues. And, and reports and anecdotal understandings that I had was that they were relatively close. And uh, Abbas was unable to close on a final few matters, and then Omar was indicted on corruption charges, and the whole thing at that point collapsed. And meanwhile, Fayyad's institution-building effort 
also began to unravel because of, of not only the challenges as it related to Gaza, uh, but also the challenges that related between the Fayyad and the boss relationship. Right. And, and the rest is, is history. Moving from the, the big picture negotiations and what had been going on in the, the last decade to what's going on now on the ground with the humanitarian assistance, what efforts was USAID undertaking in the Palestinian territories up until now, up until the, the, these big changes in, in U.S. policy? So I ran the assistance program for 11 years. And I, I want to say from the outset that there's a lot of misunderstandings as it relates to U.S. assistance. So let me just walk through those and then give you some of the, the, uh, the steps that we put in place to make sure that we have integrity in our program. And then I can talk to you about the, the results. So our money primarily goes through U.S. NGOs and U.S contracting firms. And, and if it's humanitarian assistance, we run it through the big, reputable US NGOs. And if we're building sophisticated wastewater treatment plants or roads or uh, helping with the business enabling environment, then we hire experts to, to do that. Uh, none of this money actually runs through the Palestinian Authority or through PLO coffers. We have 100% auditing of everything that we do. Uh, we vetted every key interlocutor uh, who was not American uh, through our systems back here in D.C. And um, we had eyes on the ground every day with USAID personnel. And so just recently, about two or three weeks ago, uh, at the very uh, tail end of my uh, time in the region, that was 15 and 16, I oversaw maybe a little less than a billion dollars. And the, gen and the Congressional um, General Accountability Office came back with a, an audit, a report. It was just published two weeks ago of all that money during that time. And it was a clean audit. In government speak, the U.S. government rarely gets clean audits, whether it's on any program anywhere. And in perhaps the most politicized place on earth, given all of our, our track records, we had uh, incredible integrity and accountability in our programming. So, so you've laid out very clearly what the aid wasn't. It wasn't aid to the PA. It wasn't aid to the PLO. Where was the money that, that was uh, reviewed uh, recently? Where, where was it going? What, what were the projects on the ground that you were participating in? Okay. So, so I do want your audience to know that we, we have historically provided budget support to the Palestinian Authority. And what does that mean? That means we would, and it was me, we would actually pay uh, creditors to the Palestinian Authority, and overwhelmingly, there were Israeli gas creditors. So let's just use a figure of $100 million. $75 million of it would go to uh, two Israeli gas distributors. I would literally write a check of $37.5 million to one and $37.5 million to the other. The remaining balance went to the East Jerusalem hospitals to pay off those uh, debts. The East Jerusalem hospitals are Palestinian 
uh, by culture and in nature, but they're Israeli licensed medical hospitals that operate in East Jerusalem. So um, that was the, the, the budget support. Uh, and in addition, we made huge investments in water infrastructure. So we would build trunk infrastructure in, in the West Bank to eliminate loss of water. We put in monitoring systems uh, so that people would have to pay for their water. We did wastewater and, uh, treatment plants. Uh, and what we did with water is fundamentally, and we provided water where, where there wasn't any as well. Um, but what we did with water is fundamentally change a zero-sum binary negotiation where, you know, the Israelis got X and the Palestinians got Y to a situation, and in part substantially due to Israeli technology and desal efficient use and uh, reuse, that water is no longer a binary discussion. There's enough water between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. Now the issue is pricing and distribution. And the USAID work substantially affected uh, both the pricing and the distribution. So we really made big changes uh, in water. So beyond the, these public infrastructure projects, uh, what were you doing in the private sector? So in 2003, Janine was the center of the suicide bombers in the Second Intifada. Janine produced more suicide bombers than anywhere else. Janine was more dangerous than Gaza City. Uh, and then at the time of disengagement in, in Gaza, we made a policy decision that economic pressure on Hamas would yield political change. Hamas would either succeed or fail, and that economic pressure would produce this result. In Janine, we made the opposite calculation. In Janine, we decided that economic engagement would yield political change. And so working very closely with the Palestinian private sector and actually the Israeli military, we opened trading channels through the northern West Bank, uh, through a you know from north of Janine is a small village called Jalame, where Palestinian traders were able to send their goods uh, to Israel and to the world, and we did it in a way that rock solidly protected Israeli security, but also provided the predictability for Palestinian business community. And then a few late years later, after that worked so well. And, and these were tough conversations, mind you, because Janine had been really dangerous. Uh, a, few, a few years later, we worked with the Israeli military to let Israeli Arabs from the north of Israel drive their own cars into Janine, buy goods and services, maybe get their muffler fixed and buy tomatoes and take their family out for lunch and then drive back out. And we argued about whether it was going to be 25 cars a day or 50 or 75. And now it's 9,000 cars a day that go in. And the infusion into the Janine economy for both of these efforts transformed everything. It, it dramatically lowered unemployment. It helped create opportunities for small and medium-sized businesses. Traders now can sell their goods in New York and D.C. Uh, security... Uh, has dramatically improved in Janine, both for the Israelis, but also for the Palestinians. 
uh, and governing structures and basic and basic services are 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 strongly enhanced. And uh, I'm very pleased with the work that we did with the Palestinians and the Israelis in Janine to 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 change everything. Now, you just mentioned that the strategy you took in Janine, which turned out to be successful, the West Bank is relatively quiet today, was different, almost the exact opposite from the strategy that you took in the Gaza Strip, where there are obviously uh, still problems today. It would be an understatement to say there, there, there are just still problems. There, there's the, always the threat of open warfare. What do you think went differently there? So we actually have evidence and data that allows us to assess political theory between the Israelis and the Palestinians, right? So that, that's actually a, a gigantic gift. Uh, and, and it's true. In 2005, with Gaza disengagement, um, we took a fundamentally different approach. And... Uh, economic pressure, which, by the way, is not a crazy theory, right? It's it's essentially sanctions. We do this in lots of places uh, over lots of times. Sometimes it works and sometimes it, it doesn't. But at that time, we decided to put economic stress on Hamas so that they would fail. Now, they also created economic stress. For instance, they they collapsed the, the greenhouses that were left in place after Gaza did disengagement, uh, completely destroyed them and closed down that market. So that was very bad. But nevertheless, what happened in Janine, where you saw kind of this blossoming of, of security and politics and economics uh, and, and general well-being, we have the opposite in, in Gaza. And so at 2005, you had a pretty strong, in Gaza, you had a pretty strong business community. You had a strong professional class, and you have a strong civil society. Uh, Hamas was the extreme element of the political spectrum, more or less. <clears throat> now, today, the business community, civil society, and the professional class in, Hamas, in Gaza are completely and utterly defeated. Hamas, ironically and crazy enough, is the centrist political power. And they're now challenged, not by the business community, but by uh, Islamic Jihad and a nascent ISIS. Uh, and so this, the, the policy that failed in Gaza gave running room for Hamas to consolidate power against all challengers. With the way that you were working in Gaza, the way that USAID was working in Gaza, it sounds like wasn't just a... a channel for humanitarian aid, but was, was almost a, a conduit for broader U.S. policy, like you said, sanctions against Hamas. And, and this, is, this seems to be like a, a really broad-scale infrastructure. Are there any other countries undertaking efforts, humanitarian efforts through their, their aid agencies on behalf of the Palestinians that are even anywhere near comparable in scope? I mean, I mean, look, the U.S. has historically been the, the, the biggest donor to the Palestinians. And we did it for a few reasons. We did it first and foremost. It's U.S. money. So we did it in our interests. 
we did it to help alleviate the suffering of vulnerable people in Gaza or, or in the West Bank. And we did it for Israeli security interests as well. Right. Let's not, not let's not make any mistake about all of that. Others. There are other donors that are in the mix. They usually run through U.N. structures. Um, there are some bilateral uh, aid agencies that do operate. The Germans, the Germans have done a lot of good uh, infrastructure work in water. Um, but by far, by far, uh, USAID was the fastest on the ground, uh, the most agile, the most impactful, uh, the ones that drove results. Uh, we, we also took problems off the negotiating table, as I described in both uh, in terms of water or the private sector in the Northern West Bank. And, and at the same time, we, we provided help to those who needed it. So the United States, when we leave, we're leaving a very big vacuum. Right. So, so, so given that the United States was the largest donor and given the scale of those projects, what happens now that the American money is gone or, or mostly gone? So from an American perspective, I think that we have conceded the political space. So we are walking away. We are, we're kind of vacating, certainly Gaza, uh, but vacating the Palestinian space as, as well. And, and that means that, and I was an American diplomat for 22 years, that means that you know, the American influence and power uh, both hard and soft is 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 going away, and we will cede that space to rejectionists, to Hamas and others. I mean, that will only be filled by people who will threaten Israel and who will uh, instill more suffering uh, on the on the Palestinian population. So, how do you see that playing out on the Israeli side? I, I mean, look, in the 2014 uh, lone wolf attacks that emanated out of the West Bank, if you do a data analysis, almost none of them were from Janine, right? So, so in that 10-year period, Janine had been the center of suicide bombers to n no or almost no lone wolf attackers. Meanwhile, two weeks ago in Gaza, 200 rockets came out into Israel, right? I mean, you know, the, the evidence is so crystal clear that Israel is threatened by despair uh, and rejectionists in Gaza. Uh, and, and time is not on anybody's side, including Israel's side. So the, the capability of the rockets in 2008 was inferior to 2012, which was inferior to 2014. You must conclude now in 2018 that Hamas military capability to launch rockets further, deeper, with more sophistication in Israel is greater than it was in 2014. And it was pretty, it was pretty horrific in 2014. You paint a very, a very stark picture of the, the reality that, that the Israelis, um, as well as certainly the Palestinians as the, the recipients of the aid and the United States are going to face now that that tap has been turned off. But not all of the money is gone yet. The, the Trump administration withdrew from USAID money from fiscal year 2017 that had been frozen. And there's still some money up for grabs, including $25 million for hospitals and 
$10 million allocated for conflict management and mitigation, and then there's $215 million for fiscal year 2018. What can we expect is going to happen to all of that money? So you're absolutely correct. Uh, Almost all the money in 2017 was rescinded, uh, except for the amounts that you just described. And let me just add one quick thing. It's not that the that the USAID mission didn't know what to do with the 2017 money. All of these things are pipelined. They're ready to go. They have ideas and you just drop the money in once the assistance review was done. So it, there, it was it, the, the failure to obligate that money was because the administration w- didn't allow it to go forward at that point And now has since, since pulled it back. So <clears throat> the, the money to the hospitals and that's primarily Augusta Victoria hospital and St. Uh, St. John's Eye Hospital in East Jerusalem uh, will allow those hospitals to retain financial viability. It's in everybody's interest that those hospitals don't collapse. I, I just I can't begin to tell you how. It seems like is. it was in everyone's interest that that this this other money didn't get cut, but it, it still did. Yeah, right. I agree with you. I, I mean. I'm okay with a a review of our assistance and to decide what works and what doesn't work and where you can get more impact and where you can drive results. Sure. And everything needs, everything needs oversight. Exactly. And, and, and how you can actually kind of reduce friction between the parties and get closer to negotiations. Having said that withholding this aid will not bring a boss to the negotiating table. It's irrelevant to him in his calculations as to whether or not he comes to the negotiating table. Uh, And uh, clearly we're in a post-Oslo period, so something has to be done. But what we want to do are things that aren't going to be harmful, but rather helpful. I mean, the U.S. has historically been the firefighter to put out fires between the parties. And now we're in essence being the arsonists, where we're kind of inflaming the situation by abruptly pulling out. Um, and so, look, the 18 money is still available, um, but it's not been committed that we will go ahead and use it. And so what I worry is that the 17 money creates a precedent that will allow us to withhold the 18 money as, as further leverage. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the approach that the administration has, has taken seems unprecedented in, in terms of cutting off all of this aid um, that, that had been previously delivered through USAID. Now, you you had mentioned um, the U.S. was the largest donor to the Palestinians, and it was, um, I believe, the largest donor uh, specifically also to UNRWA, um, the largest donor state to the U.N.'s Palestinian Refugee Agency. Um, But they dramatically drew down the U.S. aid to UNRWA earlier this year, and now it's expected that it's all going to be cut. Um, But UNRWA different probably from USAID, UNRWA specifically has faced a lot of criticism from the Israeli government and now from the Trump administration. You even wrote an article in the Times of Israel suggesting that a lot of these critiques were well-placed. Why do people have such a big issue with UNRWA? I mean, first and foremost, UNRWA is 70 years in the making, and it has not really changed its mode of operating uh, during that time. And almost everywhere in the world has fundamentally different operating systems now than they did in 1950. The other problem that I see is that 
Um, UNRWA basically subsidizes dysfunction and failure between the parties. Uh, it provides a welfare and entitlement and kind of perpetrates a status quo, as opposed to fixing problems and taking issues off the table, i.e., you know, water or, uh, or private sector trade in Jalame, uh, UNRWA just, just kind of perpetrates a welfare dependency. And let me just say, this is bad on a number of levels, but at the Palestinian level, people don't want food baskets for another three generations. They would like something else in life. And, uh, and, and so I, I do think that UNRWA needs to be reordered, revisioned, refined, even potentially dismantled. It's different in each place, though, and so you have to look at it. UNRWA is not a monolith, right? UNRWA is operating in the in the in the occupied territories, but also in some of the Arab states where there are a lot of Palestinian refugees. Right. So the situation for Palestinians in the West Bank is is different for sure than Palestinians that are in sealed camps in Lebanon or are a part of the chaos and uh, nightmare in um, Syria. Uh, so, you know, I would try to take a longer term plan, look at it uh, very specifically between each of the different theaters uh, and then and then work from there. But I do think UNRWA needs to have some some massive changes to it. And I've called for that very clearly. Right. A lot of the issues, though, that, that the Israelis tend to raise, especially from the political echelon and the Trump administration also, and their supporters in the United States tend to raise, seem to be more political and symbolic, such as UNRWA's existence as a separate refugee agency for the Palestinians specifically, whereas the rest of the refugees around the world go through the UNHRC, um, H, sorry, the UNHCR. Um, and the issue that UNRWA considers people to inherit their Palestinian refugee status from their ancestors, whereas refugees from other conflicts, other situations, are only the people who were initially displaced, not not their descendants. Um, do you think that those political issues, the refugee status, the very existence of UNRWA, do you think those play into the conflict? Yes, I mean, for sure. But let's separate out a couple of things. The Palestinians and the Israelis will have to resolve their disputes, including their dispute uh, over the Palestinian claim for a right of return, right? It's not, it's not for the Trump administration to pull the Palestinian list of issues off the table. We don't have to pay for it. That's, that's within our right. But it's also not. Um, but it, but it's also an issue that will ultimately have to be resolved between the parties. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, I, th I do think that the operational issues that relate to UNRWA are actually pretty important because, as I said, it, it subsidizes the continued failure and dysfunction as opposed to solutions. Let me make the last point though. In no way should we immediately cut off funding to UNRWA today because that's going to create chaos tomorrow. And let me really make a pinpoint on this. There are, I think, 750,000 UNRWA beneficiaries in the West Bank who get education, 
um, uh, healthcare and social welfare entitlements. Okay, whether or not UNRWA is the right vehicle, the fact is if we cut it off today, tomorrow there will be uh, a vacuum and, and somebody will fill that vacuum. So either the PA will have to pay for those 750 people, 750,000 people that were getting these entitlements, uh, but they can't afford it, of course. I mean, they're, they're on the verge of a financial collapse. Um, or the Israelis are going to have to pay for it, right? Or Hamas will fill the vacuum. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost the laws of physics. And I think we can be sure that the PA will not be able to cover these expenses. And one final point that relates to this, with the stress then on the PA, historically they would not accept security assistance unless there was economic assistance. So when Salam Fayyad was in power, he would argue that he would take, that he was trying to build the institutions of a future state and you needed security and you needed economics. And he would not take just security without the economics. I don't know what Prime Minister Hamdallah will do, but there might be enough pressure on the PA that they simply can't be seen as only taking security assistance when everything else is being withheld. And so it's, it's very plausible, plausible to see the collapse of the PA right now. And in that vacuum, it will either be Hamas or Israel. Right. And that's on, that's only dealing dealing with the West Bank. I mean, now right. lo- looking looking out not out, outside of even the Palestinian territories. I mean, it, 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 I kind of shudder to think about what what would happen to Jordan or Lebanon with their relatively high uh, Palestinian refugee populations if what they've relied on, whether right or wrong, for seven decades is pulled out, you know, overnight as opposed to over you know phased out. Over a gradual right. period, right. So both of those are different, and so in the case of Jordan, there's a, there's two million uh, refugees that that receive UNRWA benefits. Now, most of them are, uh, or practically all of them, are fully integrated into the political, economic, and social fabric of Jordan. Uh, so, in essence, now what we're just talking about is budget. Uh, to Jordan, which is fragile, and in every case, Jordan must stand. (laughs) Let's make no, let's have no debate about that. I mean, Jordan must remain viable. And so the economic hit for Jordan of absorbing these 2 million people onto their uh, welfare rolls basically uh, present a pretty profound budget hit. So in my, in, in my plan, what I called for was a substantial budget support to the Jordanians, not only to cover the entitlement payments, but also to allow it to grow its private sector economy so that eventually they can absorb these people after the budget support stops. So I I had a 10-year plan for Jordan that would begin to phase that out right now. Uh, Lebanon's completely different. I mean, the the Palestinians in Lebanon aren't in any way integrated into the political, economic, or social fabric. And I think that Hezbollah would take advantage of 
that in a very detrimental way to Israeli interests, because, I mean, first you have the Shia-Sunni split, and then you kind of upset the demographics of Lebanon in a way that's highly dangerous. Right. It, it, almost, it almost seems like you could, you could replay 1982 with, with, with the, um, essentially like the introduction of, of Palestinians who, who are otherwise like separate from Lebanese society into, into Lebanon from, from these camps and, uh, and, and yeah. yeah, like, like you said, just, just to upset, upset the balance and, and, and have, have Hezbollah or ha- have someone take that vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's, it's completely unsustainable, but, uh, 1982 is not the worst case scenario, right? <laughs> the, the capabilities of Hezbollah now, uh, and its relationship to Iran are much, much deeper than it was in 1982. And so I I think the risk factors are immense if Hezbollah... Right, they they weren't even a fully formed uh, organization back then. Right, right. And in 2000, I guess it was either, I I think it was 2007, you know, during the Hezbollah war on Israel... 2006, right? 2006, okay. During that that war, because we were there, um, look, Hezbollah had really incredible rocket capability. And of course, look, the Israelis are strong and Israelis know what to do in in a flat out conflict, but it does create grave risk uh, when 150 rockets are coming in uh, in, into your, your country. And that was 12 years ago, and we know that their capabilities are much better now. And, and, and by the way, they're better fighters now because of their experiences in Syria and Yemen. Right, right. It's a, it's a, scary, it's a scary picture that you paint. Um, given all of the, the despair and, and potential, likely negative ramifications of the Trump administration's decisions on USAID and UNRWA, is there something that you can give us to be a little optimistic about in in this whole situation? I know that's a tall, a tall order. I, I mean, I, I think that I learned a few things uh, during my 11 years leading the assistance program. Number one, we can solve problems. We can't solve all the problems. Okay, so let's not let's not be naive about that. And, and when I say we, I mean U.S. assistance, right? So U.S. assistance can solve problems between the parties. It can close gaps between the parties. It can be a very powerful force for good. And so to that extent, I would, I would double down on the things that worked. I would double down on the private sector economy, including the Gazan private sector economy. I would restart ag and textile relations between Israelis and Gazan uh, producers. I would look at the tech industry in Gaza, which is actually kind of interesting uh, and has some real opportunities. I would, I would, I would deepen the tech uh, culture and startup environment in Ramallah, where you see increasing numbers of uh, Palestinians engaged really effectively in the competitive tech world. And so I would definitely focus on those areas. Uh, and I would really recommend that the United States not vacate the the space. I mean that that's that's a huge gap to suddenly open after so many years, and and, and only now to wonder 
who's going to fill it. Um, it seems like there are a lot of questions on the horizon and not necessarily a lot of answers, but uh, that's what we're all working on. So, Dave Harden, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank it's you been a re- really great conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can learn more about Israel Policy Forum's work at our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org, and on our social media accounts, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Telegram. And you can explore Israel Policy Forum's ongoing 50 Steps Before the Deal initiative at www.50beforethedeal.com. Thanks for joining us.